0: Welcome to another episode of Picture Blurfect with me, Naomi Harlan harlembachis Wilkerson. Thanks so much for listening. And I am so sorry that this episode is one week later than I anticipated. We were traveling all last weekend. We went to Nashville for my beautiful nephew's first birthday, which was, you know, it's such a milestone and he had his cake smash and it was, it was just so cute. So good to see him. But I did not take into account the one hour difference in time from the East Coast at Nashville. So by the time we got home, had to go pick up the dog dog and then got home. I was like, Oh, it's like seven, eight o'clock. And I we needed to eat something. And it was just, it's exhausting. Traveling really just takes it out of you, even though it's, you're just sitting on a plane, but it's, it's very exhausting. So I apologize for this being a little bit later than expected, but I am so excited for today's episode with Dr. Jason Nagata. I am so excited for you all to hear all about his research in male eating disorders, as well as pre-adolescent eating disorders, which was really exciting. Then we also dig into the importance of vitamin D levels when looking at recovery and and eating disorder patients, which is really very interesting and something we don't hear about a lot. And that's what I'm trying to shed light on is some kind of key nuggets in the research world that you may not hear about on a daily basis when you scroll the news and and that kind of thing. So I'm super excited. But before we get started, I wanted to say thank you to every one of you that reached out to me personally in response to my last episode, where I really opened up my heart about my and my husband's struggles with infertility at the moment. And that was really it was just very overwhelming and i'm so grateful to all of you for for even sharing your stories and and opening up your hearts with with me and and feeling comfortable enough and vulnerable enough to do that because it is such a it's such a difficult topic and there is so much stigma associated with it and i feel like the more i talk about it the more at peace i can be with it um so i just i just really appreciate all of you and and thank you so much for for the outpouring of love and and um support for this really difficult issue and some updates on that front so as i told you all last episode, we have started this journey of, you know, next steps and trying to get pregnant. And um, for some of you who may not be familiar with it, there are options that you have, you know, prior to trying things like IVF and it's called IUI or intrauterine insemination, where they just try to promote the fertility, the fertilization process inside the, the uterus. So bypass the fallopian tubes completely. And um, so we did that procedure about two weeks ago. Um, And then you have to book an appointment to get a blood test for to see if you're pregnant or not. So I went in this past week. It was on Monday and um, I went in. I was actually feeling really good because I hadn't gotten my period yet. So I was like, oh, that means, you know, you're you're pregnant. That's a classic sign. Right. So I, I was feeling good, but of course, didn't want to get my hopes up. And um, then we got the call later in the afternoon, I'm so sorry, you're not pregnant. And it just kind of hit me and I was like, why? You know, I thought, I know the chances are pretty low with IUI. Um, I think you only have like a 10 to 20% chance each time for, for trying to get pregnant, potentially getting pregnant. So it, it, chances weren't great, but I had have met other people and I've had friends who have had great success with it, even on their first try. So I, I tried not to, but I did get my hopes that I'm not going to lie. And then on top of that, I didn't get my period. I thought everything was going in that right direction. And then we got that call and it was just, it hit me like a ton of bricks. And I was like, all over again, we have to start all over again, back to square one. What is wrong with me? Why is it my fault? What, what what am I doing wrong? Like, why am I being punished for something? And I'm at this point where like, and I was telling my husband this, I'm almost, st- I'm starting to resent my body in a way. Like I've had so many struggles accepting my body and Being confident in who I am, being feeling good enough to take up space and the area around me, gaining weight, being okay with the weight that I'm at, not worrying about the food that I'm eating. But now it's just like my body has completely failed me. It's not doing what it's supposed to do. It says punishment. Like, what is happening? And I just have to stop myself because then you get into that mental spiral and it can be really damaging and you can go back into those old eating disorder behaviors that you know, all it takes is that one time or one restriction, one time where you give in to the compulsive exercise temptations and it all over again. And you're, you know, and I don't want to relapse. I I want to be strong and healthy and I want to move forward. I don't want to have any setbacks, but it's really hard when you have these obstacles in the way. So that's, that's my life right now. It was so difficult. I think I'm flat out of tears, but it kind of like I cried for a few hours, and then you're okay, and then you know all of a sudden it hits you, and you cry all over again, and you know it just you, you what do you do next? And we just we're back to square one, and we try again. Um, that's just kind of where we're at. And to make matters worse, when I got the news, like, and I knew this was gonna be terrible, I went in to get this blood test to see if I was pregnant on my birthday. That's just how the timing worked out. And so I was like, it's either gonna be a really good day or it's gonna be a really bad day. And so now I'm I'm hopeful that my birthday won't be this constant reminder. But you know, I got all of these calls and these text messages, happy birthday. And and it's I wasn't in the mood to celebrate. I wasn't in the mood to open presents. I just, it was an overall really hard day for me. And I'm still struggling and talking it out with my therapist and and the people that I love. And yeah, so... That's a little bit about me and and I don't want this podcast to delve into like the personal life of of Naomi. <laughs> That's not what this is about. But it is I do want to open up my experiences and and share a little bit more of my story with you all just in case you're feeling hesitant to kind of get out there and 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 talk about what what's important to you and what's going on in your life. Um, so that's a little bit about me, but the purpose of this podcast today is to share with you Dr. Nagata's research. I'm so excited to bring to you my interview with him. So without further ado, Dr. Jason Nagata. <music> Okay, we are here with Dr. Jason Nagata. I am so excited to have you for this podcast. So before we get started, just tell us a little bit about yourself, your educational background, your current position, then of course, your research interests.
1: Yeah thanks so much for having me. I am a pediatrician who specializes in adolescent medicine and particularly in the medical management of eating disorders. Um, Currently I'm an assistant professor um, at the University of California San Francisco and I research eating disorders particularly in boys and men and um, LGBT populations and clinically I work in our inpatient eating disorders unit in San Francisco.
0: That's that's so neat, and I think eating disorders in men and the LGBTQ population is something that's really understudied, so I'm excited to pick your brain a bit here today. Uh, how did you become interested in researching eating disorders, physical activity, things of this nature? Did it come during medical school? Did you always know you wanted to go this route?
1: Yeah, I actually was first interested, I've always been interested in nutrition, and so Part of the reason why I pursued medical school and medical training was that initially I was very interested in studying undernutrition um, and so actually as an undergraduate, I my first research experiences were actually in the setting of food insecurity and child malnutrition in Guatemala and Kenya and then um, as I got to San Francisco for medical school, uh, the Unfortunately, the situation in which we saw severe malnutrition in patient populations here was often in eating disorders. And so, one of my advisors had suggested that I shadow in the adolescent eating disorders clinic at um, UC San Francisco. And I just really found that I enjoyed working with the teenagers, it was a very underserved population. And actually one of the first patients that I took care of as a medical student was a 16 year old teenage boy wrestler who had been referred to the eating disorder clinic, but it had taken several months for him to be referred. And at the point that he was referred, uh, I think he was quite severe in his presentation and it had just been missed a lot. And it's in some ways like reinforced by his coaches and uh, teammates Um, and I actually ended up like meeting with him weekly on a weekly basis for over the course of a year and in caring for him it really made me acutely aware of all the gaps that we have in our medical guidance for boys with eating disorders because a lot of the studies and guidelines didn't really apply to him Um, and then to your point about physical activity and exercise he was a varsity wrestler he would you know, go to wrestling practice for two, three hours a day, and then he would do, go to the gym on his own for another, another wow. two, three hours a day. And it also just made me realize that one of the presentations of eating disorders, particularly in boys and men, but also in girls and women, is with kind of excessive and compulsive exercise. Um, and again, there was not a lot of guidance for that. And so I think that, that just made me very aware of some of the gaps that we have in our current research and guidelines
0: yeah yeah and it's it's a long haul to like get to a point where we don't have those gaps anymore but i really commend everything that you're trying to do to answer those questions it's I think it's really interesting to see in athletes too um, how how it affects them because of the pressures that they get from their coach and their peers and all of that, in addition to just the general population. So that's just really interesting. Um, so one of the main reasons that I was really fascinated by your research was um, a paper that you and your colleagues published earlier this year that examined the prevalence of pre adolescent eating disorders here in the U.S. So how did you decide to focus in on pre-adolescence and and what gaps were you seeking to address there?
1: Yeah, thanks so much for highlighting this study. Actually, I first got involved with the adolescent brain cognitive development study, which is actually one of the largest uh, adolescent studies of brain development in the US. There's nearly twelve thousand nine to ten year olds who are followed every year um, until they're 20. So basically, it really follows them from a really important kind of the end of childhood through adolescence into young adulthood. And so it's kind of this unique opportunity to follow this large national sample of what I guess we called pre adolescence because they basically, when they started, they were nine to 10 years old. So they weren't quite adolescents yet but they're you know just on the cusp of doing of of entering adolescence so that's sort of what we meant by pre-adolescence although I think that there are varying definite I think the terms like adolescent teen youth are somewhat used interchangeably and I guess technically I think in the U.S. we tend to think that like 13 or 12 years old is sort of the entering of adolescence. But actually, technically worldwide, like the World Health Organization does say that 10 to 19 year olds could be considered adolescents. So there is a little bit of um, I don't think there's actually great standardization. But in general, I think what we meant by pre-adolescence was just like, yeah, this 9, 10, 11 year age range. Got it. Um, And I think that it's really a unique study because it follows the same group of people um, every year for a decade and so it really you know we do generally know that during this transition into adolescence and then young adulthood is a really important window when teenagers start to have body image concerns and may develop eating disorders and so this was an opportunity to study this at a kind of early age or relatively early age, like before the teen years, and see how um, how eating disorders could develop and what are some of the risk factors, what are some of the potential health um, associations or medical complications. And so the study is really unique in that among these 12,000 teenagers or I guess pre-adolescents in, who are entering their teenage years, um, they actually do like a full psychological assessment for all of the DSM or the Diagnostic and Statistical Manual Disorders. So including yeah. all the eating disorders as well as you know, a number of other ones. So um, we really have a better idea at a population level who might start to develop some of these symptoms and actually meet criteria for some of these mental health conditions.
0: Yeah, that's really interesting. And I think you're right because I think getting it right before they enter adolescence is, is really critical. So then this is probably a dumb question, but how do they decide which kids to follow around? Like how do they get to be the ones that get tracked and followed versus others?
1: Yeah. So that question is, above my pay grade, but <laughs> the, uh, the overall ABCD study, um, is actually recruited from 21 different study sites across the U S and they tried to make the sample representative of the national demographics based on sex and race, ethnicity and that socioeconomic status. Okay. So there is some purposefulness in terms of who they sample. Yeah. Um, but One of the other unique things about this study is that all these kids actually get brain MRIs every two years. Um, So there is a little bit of a bias in that the kids have to be able to access a, like a basically a medical or university center where they can get these brain MRIs. So it is a little bit more urban than rural, um, just because of that, um, that issue, but otherwise they have tried to choose a sample that is somewhat representative or as representative as possible of the US demographics.
0: Yeah, that's really interesting. And you said that they screen for all of the um, eating disorders that are within the DSM four or five. So does that include, you know, the normal anorexia, bulimia, binge eating disorder, as well as like things like orthorexia? Because I think there's there's just a, a lot of different subtypes of eating disorders now, like what all wor- was included? Was it just the normal umbrella ones?
1: Yes. So the questionnaires that the uh, that they, they were assessing for for eating disorders were really based on the DSM-5 diagnosis. Okay. So they did look at anorexia nervosa, bulimia nervosa, binge eating disorder, and then Um, sort of sub-threshold eating disorders. So if they had some of the symptoms of anorexia nervosa or bulimia nervosa, but maybe didn't meet the full criteria, then technically in the DSM, those people could either go under like other specified feeding and eating disorder. Um, So they did also create categories for some of these sub-threshold eating disorders. Um, But to your point, unfortunately, um, you know their questions were very reflective of the DSM-5, which I think is good for um, you the know, ability to really understand something close to a clinical diagnosis. But some of the other diagnoses like um, orthorexia, um, which technically aren't official diagnoses in the DSM-5 were not captured. So some of those kids yeah. might be um, captured under this other specified or unspecified group. Um, but certainly there are people who would have other symptoms that were not formally assessed
0: yeah that makes sense and i'm getting bogged down in the in the methodology just because i'm i'm a nerd like that um but the more important question is what did you find in doing this study
1: yeah so this study was actually conducted at the one year follow-up mark of the study so one day <laughs> pre-adolescents were 10 to 11 years old so it's still relatively young in terms of the onset of eating disorders Mm -hmm. Um, and so i think one thing that was surprising to me is that actually none of the participants met criteria for full threshold anorexia nervosa at this age Mm -hmm. group Um, so even though you know anorexia nervosa is perhaps one of the most commonly known eating disorders and gets a lot of attention actually at this younger age group no one in this sample had actually developed Full threshold anorexia nervosa. Although six um, percent, um, or a little over six percent, had sub-threshold anorexia nervosa. So they had like some symptoms, like fear of weight gain or fear of getting fat, um, but they didn't meet all the criteria of anorexia nervosa. So again, I think it's like a really important window where like maybe some of these preteens are starting to have body image issues and engage in certain disordered eating behaviors, but they're not quite at the full extent of like a full diagnosis of anorexia nervosa but it does seem like six percent had at least one symptom that would have been concerning Um, and then another kind of interesting finding was that actually the most common eating disorder uh, was binge eating disorder and about a little over 1% of the sample did meet criteria for full threshold binge eating disorder and another 0.6% had sub-threshold binge eating disorder. So that actually was the most common eating disorder that we found in this sample, again, at the 10 to 11 age group. Um, And also interestingly, uh, it was pretty similar in terms of boys and girls. So about 1.2% of boys met criteria for binge eating disorder and about 1% of girls. Criteria for binge eating disorder.
0: Well, is that um, does that trend change when when it's older for with for older adults?
1: Um, We do expect to see that as um, the group as this cohort ages. I do expect that the prevalence of or incidence of anorexia nervosa and bulimia nervosa will likely increase but I do think that overall even though binge eating disorder I think typically doesn't get as much attention in the research and maybe common um, understanding it is potentially one of the most common eating disorders and even yeah. more common than anorexia nervosa. Um, so I do think it's an important uh, disorder to understand, especially at this early age group and, um, and you know, it does have its own set of unique mental health and physical health consequences.
0: Yeah, exactly. Um, so that, that's really interesting. We're and, and you mentioned that you were surprised by, by some of these results. So why do you think it is the case that binge eating, even in pre-adolescence, is more common? Is it a neurological, biological, is it more environmental? Or do we just not have enough data to confidently answer that question, which is usually what happens in science?
1: <laughs> yeah, I don't think based on this study, we have enough data to confidently answer that question. But I do think that um, overall, we definitely do see that. You know, concerns about overeating and loss of control eating and guilty eating are mm. quite common, unfortunately, even among children and early adolescents. So, even though it is somewhat surprising that to me that this is, was the most common, I guess when I actually think about it, like I, especially like in primary care pediatrics, it's just I think concerns about weight are so common, especially in people who have like kids who have, like maybe have. Larger sizes, there's a lot of like weight shaming, weight teasing. And so I think that unfortunately, there's a, you know, we didn't look at the etiology of this in this particular study, but I do think that in general, there's, you know, likely to be a genetic component, but there's also likely to be some uh, risk factors like maybe bullying or adverse childhood experiences or trauma um, or even counseling from certain people to lose weight or, you know, look a certain way that can lead to um, yeah binge eating episodes.
0: Yeah, exactly. And so because you looked at the pre-adolescent window, do you think that's the key time to implement like intervention practices or or what because of that window like how can we take advantage of that because you didn't see full-blown for example full-blown anorexia symptoms is that the time that doctors maybe need to be more aware or take steps to prevent potential development of these disorders
1: yeah i do think that it seems like this could be a key window where we're seeing you know a sizable proportion of teenagers who are starting to engage in some of these disordered eating behaviors, particularly for restriction or or kind of compensation like vomiting or diuretic use. Um, And so I do think that this is a key window for prevention efforts. Um, And I also have to say that in our clinical practice, unfortunately, we are starting to see more and more younger kids. I think like, you know, we definitely have had to have in our hospital inpatient setting, you know, eight, nine-year-olds who have even developed full-blown eating disorders. So I do think that, um, you know, this early identification and prevention is going to be really important.
0: Just, it's it's really, and I know it skyrocketed a lot during the pandemic, um, which is just, it's really heartbreaking to see. So I'm glad you did this study and I can't wait to see follow-up studies from, from this. Um, so shifting gears a little bit, uh, you did another interesting study published this year that looked at vitamin D levels among young adults that are hospitalized with eating disorders, uh, focusing especially on males. So why did you... Look at that aspect of of recovery and treatment for eating disorders. Why is it important to take a look at vitamin D um, among eating disorder patients?
1: Yeah. Thanks so much for highlighting this study as well. And I think the overall rationale for conducting this and actually a number of related studies was that as i mentioned medical guidelines in particular for eating disorders are very female-centric right now and there are several places in the guidelines where um, there's just no recommendation for boys and men or like if there is a recommendation it's sort of based on amenorrhea which is the medical term for loss of periods. so like for instance for bone density right now um, in the adolescent society medical guidelines if you have had amenorrhea for six months or more then that's when you should consider getting a bone scan like a dexa which is like an x-ray to measure your bone density Um, but obviously the amenorrhea criteria that doesn't apply to boys and men so it's we're kind of at a loss as to when to do that type of testing Um, and there are several other examples and even in the earlier versions of the dsm amenorrhea was a criteria for even the diagnosis of anorexia nervosa Um, so i do think that um so yeah i guess overall my goal in some of the medical research has been to really look at male samples in particular and to document all of these medical complications um, in male populations because the vast majority of the research is either exclusively female samples or a majority female samples and they don't disaggregate the data by Mm -hmm. sex or by gender Um, and so you know just to get a better understanding because we do know that sometimes the presentation of eating disorders in male populations can be different. Like we mentioned, they may be more likely to present with excess exercise. Maybe their caloric restriction may be, I mean, they can be as severe, but sometimes the energy deficits actually come from more like the energy imbalance with the excess of exercise and like teenage boys might actually be eating what for some people might be considered a, you know, adequate diet, but the fact that they're exercising five plus hours a day means that they still get into these energy deficits. Yeah. Um, so this vitamin D study, um, in part, was inspired by the uh, gap in the bone guidelines because we do know that you know, vitamin D can be important for bone density and um, development. Um, and Prior to this study, we had actually looked at um, comparisons of bone density and fracture risk in males versus females and actually found that male populations had just as severe bone deficits as female populations, even though there's no guideline as to when to get that DEXA scan. Um, and then we also found that male populations are at higher rates of uh, risk of getting fractures, especially later in life. I think one important thing for bone density that, um, you know, can be motivating for some teenagers and young adults is just like your growth spurt and when you hit puberty, you kind of have this critical window in your teenage years to, you know, have your growth spurt to gain height and similarly to gain bone density. And once that period has ended, you really can't gain that later. Um, And so actually the fracture study that we looked at in boys found that um, the Higher fracture risk actually wasn't apparent until decades later, until like you were 40 plus years. But at that point, it's like too late to, yeah. there's nothing you can really do about it to gain more bone density at that point because you're way past your growth spurt. Um, And so, yeah, this study was looking specifically at vitamin D levels in male versus female patients. Um, And we actually found that among patients hospitalized for eating disorders at UC San Francisco, at least among the males, actually forty-four percent had um, vitamin D insufficiency. Um, so there are like technical cutoffs for you know different vitamin D levels, um, and actually among those, um, eight. had actually severe vitamin D deficiency, and that um, rate of severe vitamin D deficiency was actually greater than the percentage of females who had severe vitamin D deficiency. So only 2% of females had severe versus almost 9% of males. Um, So, again, like an example of one instance in which vitamin D deficiency in males can actually in some ways be more severe than in female patients, even though, to my knowledge, this is the first study that has looked at vitamin D levels in a male eating disorder sample.
0: Yeah, no, that's extremely fascinating. I know, I mean, I had anorexia, it's the most common, most known eating disorder, and the loss of your period is probably that key sign that you that something is biologically really wrong with you during recovery uh, but one of the first things that my doctor did was put me on a vitamin D supplement um, as well as um, birth control so is there a and that's purely to just help bones and prevent, you know, any kind of potential bone loss and, and osteoporosis. Do men also have similar, similar to like vitamin D supplementation? Do they also have something to help with them as the, as they go through, or is it just vitamin D? Um,
1: yeah. So the things that affect bone density uh, are in general, like vitamin D actually the, Best intervention for any eating disorder patient who has vitamin D deficiency or low bone density is actually just weight restoration. So, like general nutrition is like the biggest factor, actually more important than any kind of supplement or um, you know hormonal therapy. Um, and then I guess the other important consideration is that um, you know, bone density can be affected by hormone levels. And so in females, that typically is like estrogen. Um, and then in females, that's typically t- testosterone. Um, but yeah, similarly, depending on each individual, their you know hormone levels can be affected. So males can have low testosterone, females can have low estrogen, um, and that can also play out with with bone health um yeah. so i think they're parallel um you know like processes although they're like slightly different um just because of like you know sex hormones and um sure. and reproductive cycles um but i think that in both males and females nutrition is the most um, important factor in um getting your bone health back um into you know back on track uh and then there have been more studies recently on other types of therapy, like in females, there's um, like estrogen therapy or like like even getting yeah. patches or hormone replacement. Um, but I do think that there is still, um, the evidence I think is still like somewhat inconclusive for any of those mm-hmm. therapies. And the best intervention that we have is really getting the nutrition back on track. Right.
0: Yeah, yeah. And so you mentioned with, with this that it, you saw more men had, needed more vitamin D than what the women were getting did do you were you able to disaggregate the data according to like eating disorder like did it vary based on like those that had binge eating or those that were hospitalized for bulimia
1: Yeah, that's a really great question. Um, Unfortunately, our sample uh, was like the largest sample of men so far. I think we had about a hundred males, but amongst that sample, there were, you know, many different diagnoses. Anorexia nervosa was the most common among these hospitalized males, but the other groups, um, you know, had much smaller um, numbers. Actually in this hospitalized sample, binge eating disorder was actually much rarer. And so we weren't powered to look at differences Mm. between the diagnoses but I do think that future research should definitely look into that and I do think that part of the reason why we did this study was to try to see if I do think that it's plausible that there could be differences based on a number of different factors.
0: Yeah, no, very true. And going back to what you were saying, the best intervention is just weight restoration. I wonder then, for those that restrict, if they would need more vitamin D compared to others. But like you said, there's just multiple variables involved.
1: Yeah, that's what we were initially thinking as well. And we actually were initially thinking that potentially, um, if males didn't restrict as much as females, like if maybe the the mechanism or the symptoms and eating disorders in males really was more of the hyper-exercise type rather than restrictive eating, it is possible that, you know, they may not have had as severe vitamin D deficits because, you know, they're getting adequate nutritional vitamin D, um, but uh, that actually wasn't the case. So it did seem like the vitamin D levels were at least as severe or in some cases even more severe in the males.
0: That's crazy. So even though this study was retrospective, like how can that information then be used to inform future studies, future medical treatments for those with eating disorders, particularly males, since there is just so little information on this?
1: Yeah, I think that one concrete recommendation or implication from this was that while we did find that 44% of these hospitalized males had vitamin D insufficiency or deficiency, actually only 3% of them were placed on vitamin D supplementation like prior to the hospitalization. So I do think that it's just good for providers to be aware that especially males and everyone with eating disorders can be affected by vitamin D deficiency and so to consider assessing for it as part of sort of the medical management and workup Um, and then as you had mentioned like you know giving people appropriate supplementation if needed Um, so I think that that's just one I think for many people, because there is maybe this assumption that males like are healthier or males with eating disorders like are different or healthier, like sometimes people forget to think about all these other aspects. So I do think it's important that we, you know, think about vitamin D D and other nutritional deficiencies. Um, You know, uh, sister study to this, we also looked at anemia and zinc levels in males and we actually Mm -hmm. found that a quarter of male patients were zinc deficient and that was actually pretty similar to to females about a quarter of females were zinc deficient also Um, but interestingly we also we found that um, half of males were anemic so like had a low blood red blood cell count and that was actually Uh, a greater proportion than females. And so I do think that all of these different types of deficiencies, you know, can affect males either equally severely or more severely as females and also important for medical providers to be aware.
0: Ah, that's And what is zinc important for, just for, I guess, listeners who may not have any clue why we need zinc? <laughs>
1: yeah. Um, I think one of the important functions, zinc is important for a lot of different functions, but one very concrete function is that it does help our immune system to fight off infections. Mm-hmm. And so that's why, you know, sometimes people like with a cold or whatever, like sometimes they're encouraged to get vitamin or to get zinc um, because zinc does have important kind of immune properties and, and help yeah. them with. Um, with fighting off infections
0: is that more so than vitamin c because i've heard both i've heard it's a myth to take vitamin c when you're sick and i've heard like i've heard zinc which i believe more but i'm not sure about vitamin c yeah
1: i mean i think that they are both implicated in general in your immune function but i do think that there is debate as to whether either of those like supplement like taking extra supplements while you're sick actually makes a difference but i think that physiologically those that like the one of the key functions of of zinc and like vitamin c is like they do have important functions but it's just not clear taking extra supplements like makes a huge difference
0: yeah yeah strange tangent there um what was i saying but i'm also interested since you are really like your research interests involve like physical activity what the role of like heavy exercise compulsive exercise plays in like vitamin deficiencies and, and how much how much is it like lack of nutrition versus like you're doing some external things to your body and it's like you're losing maybe sweat and sodium and all of that i'm just that that's always like kind of in the back of my mind wondering
1: yeah i do think that that is a very very complex question There's so many different factors that go into play because yeah. um yeah on the one hand like you know you have intake of all these vitamins and minerals and, yeah, I guess if you're... I think, to me, the most important thing is that, you know, whatever... I mean, all these conditions are very individualized. And so whether it's you, know, someone like with a full blood flow eating disorder, or even just an athlete who may not be aware of like nutritional requirements, even in the absence of mental health symptoms or disordered eating symptoms, um, you know, there's this phenomenon that used to be called the female athlete triad, and now it's actually become more gender neutral. So they call it the relative energy deficiency in sports so that it can mm-hmm. apply to not just females. Um, but the idea of that is that, yeah, when you have have basically you're not getting in enough nutrition to meet the metabolic demands of yeah. your physical activity you can still run into these problems with and all the medical complications that come with essentially being having energy imbalances and being in a somewhat starvation or malnourished state yeah. um, and, and so I do think that um, more awareness of that among athletes in general is super important. Um, and to your point, I also think that all the electrolyte issues are particularly challenging in athletes, especially as you're saying, like if you're, you know, running a marathon or doing an right. Ironman, there's just so many shifts in your electrolytes. And exactly. I, I think, um, yeah, that that is also that would also be a very interesting study because i think in general like you know eating disorders can wreak havoc on all the electrolytes and there's like refeeding syndrome and stuff like that but then in addition to that having huge shifts based on yeah just like exercise and perspiration and trying to meet those demands i think is yeah super complex and so definitely if anybody is doing that level of exercise i do think it's important to have a good nutrition plan and making sure that you're of the nutritional needs including electrolytes and vitamins right. and minerals.
0: Right. There's a reason Michael Phelps ate what? Like twelve thousand calories a day or something. <laughs> yes. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It's it's just really important if you're gonna have that much exercise. Um, so we, we can close with like one last question. I want to thank you again for all your time and just all of this, the work that you've been doing is just so, so fascinating. Um, so my last question is, what is your advice for those that may be listening, especially those that are male, identify as male, who are struggling with an eating disorder, but they're just too scared to take that first step and seek help?
1: Yeah, I think that one thing, especially since we've been focusing a lot of, on exercise and physical activity, is that I do think that there is, you know, somewhat of a slippery slope where it's not always clear when somebody should get help, because in general, you know, exercise, physical activity is actually recommended in, um, you know, in, in moderate amounts, like it can be really beneficial for your health. And actually, most Americans probably don't get enough physical activity. And so as like a primary health provider like I think you know generally we do encourage physical activity and exercise um, but I do think that at a, you know for some people at a certain point um, if exercise or eating or weight concerns um, you know start to become a preoccupation rather than like bringing enjoyment or if you know people start to obsess about them or if it's really Detracting from your quality of life rather than um, improving your quality of life. Um, and if it's starting to affect your work or school, um, you know, some boys and men will tell me that you know, they become so obsessed with going to the gym or, you know, their muscles that they aren't able to have regular meals with family and friends because they're not high enough in protein content or, um, you know, they feel guilty if they're not at the gym and during all their free time. Um, I think those are some like warning signs that, you know, you can just share those feelings with others, you know, a trusted mm-hmm. friend or adult and or to seek help, um, you know, either through your primary care provider and um, or a mental health provider. I think that, you um, Yeah, the point that it starts to become a preoccupation or obsession or really worsen your quality of life, those might be times to start to seek help.
0: Yeah, I totally agree with you. And we had an episode because I think I chatted with one of your colleagues, Dr. Kyle Ganson, um, about the muscle building behaviors, eating disorders in men. So we've already talked a lot about it on this podcast, but it keeps coming up of just how prevalent it is, especially among males, but we're starting to see it in females too, this pressure to go to the gym. And like you said, this recommend it's recommended to go to the gym and exercise. T- Two-a-days are totally normal and it's fine. And it started with, for me, it started with exercise when my... I was having really bad migraines and a neurologist told me, well, how fast can you run a mile? And I was like, what does that have to do with anything? And I was like, I don't know, but I don't really run. And he said, you need to run a seven minute mile. And it pushed me and I and he said, but I think running will help get the blood flow and will help your migraines. It helped with my migraines, but I developed an obsession with running and exercising and it morphed into into more from there. But it's just it's a lot. And I think it's hard to tease apart the nutrition aspect of it, the guilt aspect of it, environmental factors, as well as like what's going on neurologically in, in all of us. So, everything that you said, I'd like really appreciate your advice, the work that you're doing, and all the collaborations that, that you have in play right now. Cause I know research is not a one man job, it's a lot of moving parts. Mm-hmm
1: yeah well thank you so much for um having me on the podcast and for um sharing yeah sharing this work and and also for um giving this platform so that those people out there who may be struggling or contemplating um do have a little bit more information so thanks so much for your service on the podcast
0: thank you That's our show for this week, everyone. Thanks so much for listening. And thank you again, Dr. Jason Nagata for joining the podcast. So excited to see what else comes out from your lab and, and the, the work that you're doing is so necessary. So I hope everyone enjoyed that conversation. I think it's really important to, to look at things like vitamin D levels in all eating disorder patients, things that eat that doctors and, and primary care providers really need to be on the lookout for for eating disorder patients and, and those in recovery because it's not just only affecting females, are only affecting certain populations. So it's really important information. And I'm so glad uh, he and his lab lab colleagues are able to shed light on these matters. So I as I always tell you all every week to always just take care of yourself, be gentle with yourself. That's something that I particularly need to be working on as I'm going through my own personal things. But just remember that your body is a miraculous being and, and the things that it's able to do is just it's really amazing. And so, so trust it, listen to your instincts, listen to your hunger, and remember that the number on the scale and the size of your clothing has nothing to do with your worth or, or how beautiful you are because you matter in this world and you are so important and you are worthy no matter what. So I hope you have, you all have a great rest of the week and we will talk to you next time.